This week on Worldview, we're going to take a look at the five big tests for global diplomacy in 2023, how the big powers, India and the global community at the United Nations fared on each of them. Hello and welcome. This is Worldview's Year Ender at the Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. So let's get right to it, to the start this week and the end of the COP28, the Climate Change Summit or the Conference of uh, Parties as it's known, held in Dubai. It ended with a final document called the UAE Consensus that agreed to a number of actions. So that's our global uh, diplomacy challenge number one, climate change. Here's what the COP28 president, Sultan Al-Jabbar, and remember, he's been in the news because he not only heads the COP, he heads the UAE Renewables Company, but he also heads the Adnoc Oil Company. Here's what he said. An enhanced, balanced, but make no mistake, historic package to accelerate climate action. It is the UAE consensus. So what were the big takeaways? And the document is online. The first big one is really that this is the first articulation that the world wants to transition away from fossil fuel and end to oil, coal and gas in energy production in particular. It didn't talk about phasing them out yet. It says a transition away from them. Uh, the second is the tripling of renewables by 2030. Uh, the third was the naming and shaming of methane, accelerating and substantially reducing non-carbon dioxide emissions globally, including in particular methane emissions by 2030. Remember, normally everyone talks about CO2 uh, or carbon emissions, but they don't talk really about the emissions from uh, gases like methane. Net zero uh, by 2050, that's another big takeaway. This is meant, of course, to push India that has put 2070 as its net zero date, the date by which it will be carbon neutral. And China has 2060 as well. So they want to push them to earlier dates. There's a loss and damage fund. We spoke about this last week that was adopted with about $750 million committed by developed countries, most notably UAE, France, Germany, Italy, towards the fund that was set up during the climate change summit. Critics, however, have described this final document as weak tea, watered down, a litany of loopholes, and some even criticize the UAE COP president directly for not ensuring stronger language against fossil fuels. The oil and gas industry made a mistake in overreaching and naming the CEO of one of the largest and one of the dirtiest, by many measures, oil companies in the world as the president of the COP. That's U.S. Vice, former Vice President Al Gore, who's of course now a big activist against climate change. So where was the world on this big global diplomacy challenge, number one? Um, of the P5, leaders of U.S. and China actually skipped the summit. They didn't even go. Uh, they sent their special emissaries. Russian President Putin actually flew into Abu Dhabi with much fanfare to the UAE, but he didn't go to the COP in Dubai. He signed a number of energy deals, fossil fuel energy deals in particular. Leaders of the UK and France attended COP28. At the other end of the global spectrum, small island states, climate vulnerable countries that bear the brunt of global warming all attended the COP28 summit and they were perhaps the most critical. Listen in. We have come to the conclusion that the course correction that is needed has not been secured. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual, 
when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. Mr. President, in paragraph 26, we do not see any commitment or even an invitation from parties to peak emissions by 2025. We reference the science throughout the text and even in this paragraph, but then we refrain from an agreement to take the relevant action in order to act in line with what the science says we have to do. Representative from Samoa there. But where is India in all of this? India spoke essentially for the developing world. So somewhere in the middle, it doesn't want to commit to ending fossil fuel use that would slow its growth. It pushed for terms like phase out and coal powered plants to be cut out of the text, was partially successful in that. India does have a lot of pride in the fact that it has exceeded its own goals for nationally determined contributions or NDCs and is now updating them as well. But India is making it clear it isn't part of the global po uh, problem. It hasn't contributed that much to emissions and it certainly won't be pushed into becoming part of the global solution. That is the responsibility of the developed countries that have begun this problem. India is also not prepared to bring forward targets for net zero or for ending coal use, at least certainly not yet. And the big announcement, Prime Minister Modi, who went to the COP28, pitched for India to host the COP33 summit in 2028. So India taking that global leadership position on the stage, hopefully in five years. Let's turn then to the second and third big challenges to global diplomacy this year, and they came from conflict. Uh, of course, Israel, but I'll first come to the Russian war in Ukraine. The war in Ukraine is now heading to its two-year mark. In a four-hour-long press conference that was held this week, Russian President Vladimir Putin made it clear that the war in Ukraine will not end until what he called the goals of demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine are met. Uh, remember, last year he didn't actually hold this annual press conference, He's certainly looking much more confident about the way the war is going for Russia. The OHCHR or the Office of the High Commission of Human Rights estimates civilian casualties in Ukraine since February 2022 uh, in both the territories in, uh, that are now controlled by Ukraine and those that Russia has taken to be more than 40,000. Uh, about 500,000 military casualties are claimed if you count both sides although these are, of course, contested and Russia doesn't put out the exact figures. As aid has begun to dwindle to its lowest point since February 2022, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky has been traveling to the US, to Germany, to other countries to try and raise support for more funds and arms. So how is the world faring on this, uh, uh, this conflict that is now into its second year? The UN Security Council is frozen over the issue. Russia has vetoed any resolutions against it. It's certainly unusual to have uh, the P5 member himself directly involved in the conflict. On the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion, the UN General Assembly, which was quite tired of the UNSC being frozen, passed a resolution calling on Russia to leave Ukraine. And there were 141 countries that voted in favor of that very tough resolution. 32 abstentions, including India, and seven against it. In March 2023, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, issued an arrest warrant for President Putin. However, no country Mr. Putin has visited since then, including, I think, China, Central Asia, uh, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, have enforced that. Uh, 
After near breakdown in talks at the G20 in Delhi, and remember this was a big moment, and here at Worldview we wrote, we talked quite a lot about it, India was able to forge a consensus document that brought the world together for a brief moment. Uh, the document didn't criticize Russia, but it called for peace in Ukraine. Uh, it was a document Kiev was disappointed by, but it was a rare moment of consensus. So where is India on that? Uh, it has continued to abstain at the UN. It doesn't have any public criticism of Russia. Uh, India has continued to buy increasing amounts of Russian oil, despite US and Western countries' sanctions. Uh, in fact, one of the figures earlier this year was that India's imports of oil from Russia have increased a whopping 2,200%. India has also continued its weapons imports from Russia, although many shipments have been delayed due to Russian production issues as well as the payment mechanism problem. However, India has clearly reduced its political engagement with Moscow. Prime Minister Modi has not gone to Russia this year. Uh, it's the second time he's skipping the annual India-Russia summit. And India also dropped plans to host the SCO summit in person, which would have brought uh, Mr. Putin to Delhi, instead making that particular conference a virtual conference. On to the third global challenge, and we just mentioned it, which is the October 7th attacks and Israel's bombing of Gaza. 2023 is really now known as the year of two conflicts, with many questioning whether big powers like the US that have a stake in both can continue to fund its allies on both while it deals with China. The current turn of the conflict began on October the 7th as the Hamas group carried out a number of coordinated terror strikes in Israeli settlements along the border with Gaza, brutally killing 1,200 people, taking 240 hostages, allegations of beheading and rape against the Hamas terrorists. Israel's retaliation that we have seen unfold over the past two months, pounding Gaza residents for more than two months really, in an effort, it says, to finish off Hamas and to rescue the hostages has really been devastating. 29,000 munitions have been dropped since the beginning. More than 18,000 people killed. Most of, Many of them, around 7,000, are children. Many of them are women. Every kind of infrastructure in North and South Gaza has been flattened. More than 1.8 million people, or 80% of the population, is at present homeless with really nowhere to go. So where is the world on this conflict two, two months on? The UN Security Council, like it is in Israel, on, on Ukraine, is again paralyzed. This time, instead of Russia, it's the US that is vetoing every resolution that comes in against Israel. Uh, the UN General Assembly has passed two resolutions with overwhelming support. In October, 120 countries, or two-thirds present, voted in favor of the ceasefire. In December, 153 countries, four-fifths of those present, voted in favor with severe criticism of Israel's actions. Several countries have also withdrawn their diplomats from Tel Aviv, like South Africa. But Arab states, significantly, have had several conferences to criticize Israel, but have not so far cut off their ties uh, that were forged during the Abraham Accords. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has rejected the UN's calls for a ceasefire. He says the bombing won't stop until Hamas is eliminated. The Global South, interestingly, has voted almost as a block in each of these votes, criticizing Israel for its disproportionate response and for the indiscriminate bombing that has caused such a large loss of civilian casualties. So where is India on this third big diplomatic challenge for the world? 
When the October 7th attacks took place, uh, India seemed to change its stance, issuing strong statements on terrorism, calling for a zero-tolerance approach that seemed a lot more pro-Israel. And then in the United Nations General Assembly, India voted in September, in fact didn't vote, it abstained from the voting, which was a major shift from the past policy where it had consistently called for ceasefires and uh, a cessation of hostilities. However, since then, things have changed again. As the death toll from Israel's bombardment has risen and the global mood has shifted, India moved closer to its original position, expressing concern for Palestinian victims, sending aid, and then this week, in that big reversal, voting for the UNGA resolution that actually marked the first time since October the 7th that India had called for a ceasefire. The shifts and the hedging in position has clearly left India without a leadership role in this conflict at present and really away from the global South and South Asia itself. Right. Let's turn now to the fourth big global diplomacy challenge. And this is really a continuing one from Afghanistan and particularly from the Taliban regime and its attitude towards women in an area where the world has scored a big F for failure. Two and a half years after the Taliban took over Kabul, there's little hope for loosening its grip on, on the country. The interim government of the Taliban, that's what it calls itself, which includes many members of the United Nations terrorism list, remains in place. Uh, no women in it, no talks about an inclusive or democratic, more representative government taking its place. These were all promises made in the Doha Accords that were signed with the US in 2021. With the economy in shambles, sanctions in place, and aid really depleted, 15 million Afghans now face acute food security, 3 million of them face starvation or severe malnourishment. An earthquake this year, compounded problems, many dead there, many made homeless. Adding to the misery, 500,000 Afghan refugees have now been sent back from Pakistan, and they also lack food, clothing, and shelter and are looking for more aid. The other big problem, Girls are not allowed to go to school in most parts of the country. Female students can't pursue higher studies. And women are not allowed to hold most jobs or use um, parks, gyms, public places in general. While the United Nations doesn't recognize the Taliban, nearly 20 countries, including India, now run diplomatic missions in Kabul. And most countries treat the Taliban as the official regime. Uh, no country today, however, supports or gives more than really lip service to the armed resistance uh, that operates out of uh, parts of Afghanistan and Tajikistan or to democratic exiles in different parts of the world. So that's uh, really where the world is. And where is India on this global diplomacy challenge? Perhaps this is the grimmest part of the report card, if you like. India has reopened its mission in Kabul and as of last month, the embassy of the old democratic regime in Delhi was forced to shut down due to lack of funds and stuff. So this was the embassy that had been set up by the democratic or re republic regime uh, of President Ghani at the time in Afghanistan. Uh, it has now been reopened by other diplomats, by Afghan consuls from Mumbai and Hyderabad who engaged the Taliban regime, although they still bear the old democratic regime's flag. So we don't yet have uh, the Taliban's flag uh, on the embassy here. India has sent food and material aid to Afghanistan, first through Pakistan and then via Chabahar. And Indian officials regularly engage the Taliban leadership in Kabul. 
However, unlike India's policy of the past from 1996 to 2001 when the Taliban was last in control of Afghanistan, India has not taken any Afghan refugees or just a very, very small trickle. India has rejected visas for students, for business persons and even for spouses of Indian citizens. That's certainly unprecedented, uh, nor does India support the armed resistance or any democratic exiles uh, in a departure from the past when India used to support, of course, Emma Shah Massoud, but also many political leaders who took shelter in India. Uh, in short, does not want a real leadership cri uh, role in the crisis, which yields space for other countries like China and Russia. On to the fifth big global diplomacy challenge. And finally, this is one the world is waking up to. So we, we're talking about it right now, which is artificial intelligence. For the past few decades, military powers have certainly been developing AI, artificial intelligence, to use in robotic warfare, more and more sophisticated drone technology, as well as other areas. Private industry has also really been harnessing uh, different AI applications, from everything from um, you know, machine intelligence, uh, when it comes to communications, R&D, to machine manufacture as well. However, the use of uh, artificial intelligence in information and information warfare, as, as it's being called, deepfakes and all the rest of that, has now become a cause for concern about everything. One is, of course, the job losses end of artificial intelligence taking over human jobs, but then to cyber attacks and also to the basic control that humans will have over systems vis-a-vis uh, -vis the computer. So the world is looking for ways to find common ground on regulating this kind of AI. Last month, this is where the world is, the UK actually hosted the first global AI summit with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak bringing in many leaders from around the world and certainly many delegations. Uh, the US sent its vice president, the EU sent its chief, the UN Secretary General Guterres as well were there. The countries present agreed on an AI panel, an inter, uh, intergovernmental panel that really resembles the one on climate change that originally started the talks, uh, the IPCC as it was known, uh, that started the talks on countering climate change. So that's something as how the world is looking at AI. India too hosted this year's version of the Global Partnership on AI, GPAI or GPA as it's known, in Delhi this month. It comprises 28 countries. It's a smaller group, 28 countries and the EU. And they look at the trustworthy development, deployment and the use of AI. Also, of course, at the Modi-Biden meeting in Washington, the state visit uh, this year in June, India and the US have embarked on a whole new tech partnership and working on AI is likely to be a part of that as well. In fact, even President Putin this week had to face the AI challenge head on at his press conference. One of the questions actually came from his doppelganger, someone who looked remarkably like him. So clearly the AI problem and its potential is a work in progress. Uh, we hope to do a full show on geopolitical developments around AI when we return with Worldview next year. So what's Worldview's take on the year gone by? Simply put, this has been a year that has seen global consensus and global action weaken more than ever before, as anti-globalization forces turn countries more protectionist, anti-immigration, as less countries are willing to follow the international rule of law, humanitarian principles, uh, the entire system of global governance has gone into decline. 
India's path into such a future is really threefold. To strengthen the global commons as much as possible, to seek global consensus on futuristic challenges like the one we spoke about, and to understand the necessity, and I keep saying this point, for smaller regional groupings, this is for both security and prosperity alternatives. So we, we won't go without giving you some reading recommendations. Here's our Worldview Year Ender uh, reading list. The first, India's Moment, Changing Power Equations Around the World by Mohan Kumar. Now, he's a former diplomat. He's an academic. He's an economic expert. He's a big expert on multilateral economics. This book is a very easy read. It'll make a lot of sense. And uh, I certainly suggest you get it and go through it. Uh, another very interesting book called Unequal, I'm, I've just started it. It's called Why India Lags Behind Its Neighbors by Swati Narayan. It's a startling work of research, compelling argument on the need to pay more attention to human development indices, particularly for India, which seems to be doing not as well as even its own neighborhood. Another book that's just out called India's National Security Challenges is edited by someone who is known as India's security czar, N.N. Vora. Some superb essays in it on the need for a national security policy and for defense reforms. Uh, there's also a chapter by a former uh, General B.P. Rawat, who passed away, on the, on the defense reforms uh, future. Then there's this book called The Age of AI and Our Human Future by Henry Kissinger, Eric Schmidt, and Daniel Hutenlocker. Mr. Dr. Kissinger, of course, passed away uh, earlier. And this is certainly a very interesting first look at AI, uh, a book that's just come out, which seems to be really well-timed. It's called Conflict, a Military History of the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine by Andrew Roberts and retired General David Petraeus. Of course, will be an American perspective on all of these wars, but certainly a very interesting look. Uh, then, of course, my favorite, The Power of Geography, 10 Maps that Reveal the Future of Our World. This is something I've spoken about before by Tim Marshall, but now there's also the future of geography, how power and politics in space will change our world. So we'll be back with Worldview in the new year and lots more uh, to discuss with you. We hope you keep watching, keep writing in, log on to www.thehindu.com and certainly subscribe and like The Hindu's YouTube playlist. From the team at Worldview, thanks for watching and have a very happy new year.